You're listening to Road to CEO, nothing but in-depth interviews with executives about their journeys as CEO. I'm your host, Will Marlowe, and I hope you enjoy the show. I'm here today with Jonathan Cantor, the founder and CEO of Uncommon Golf, which is a company that is aimed at creating a better type of golf ball. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Well, can I just say that you are uh, one of the 10% who pronounced my last name correctly? It's not that complicated, but you nailed it. So this is a great way to start. What, what kind of pronunciations do you hear? Because to me, oh it seems God. pretty I clear. Get, I get Cantor. I, I just get like the variations of, of it. I don't know why, but like you just nailed it. So I think we're well, getting off to the right, right start here. All right. I'm, glad, I'm, always, uh, I'm always glad to get a compliment. Why don't we start at the beginning? What is Uncommon Golf all about? Yeah, really good question. So, you know, for me, like I grew up uh, in the outdoor industry. My first job was working at Burton Snowboards and uh, I worked at Oakley and a few other brands where the emotional tie to the consumer with these brands is so profound. People get tattoos of the brand logo on their arms and all this other stuff. And, you know, about five or six years ago, I got really into golf. And like, I felt like all the brands kind of were positioned like auto parts you know, they only talked about like performance and price and I didn't relate to them. So, you know, in common was basically our attempt to build a, a brand that um, was more relatable in golf that stood for more, had more, um, I'd say like brand meaning than like just function to the user, right? So Uncommon, we, uh, our, our whole mantra is about self-expression and playing golf your way. And uh, we tell a lot of emotional marketing stories, of course, you know, from a performance standpoint and from a price standpoint, we're competitive for the rest of the market. But Uncommon is really a, uh, a, a, an attempt to be very different in a homogenous, old, stodgy market. Fascinating. Fascinating. So kind of like the way Harley Davidson created this cult around their motorcycles you know, you're building a brand with that kind of resonance. That's exactly right. You think about a Harley, you know, classic stories of like, you know, some of these Japanese manufacturers, like having higher technical specs and speed and all of other stuff, but people love the Harley brand. And there's something that's so magic about that. Same thing with Apple computers. And, you know, yeah. that, that is the goal to do that in golf. Very interesting. So I want to, I want to get into kind of what, what differentiates the product and all that. But before that, um, I think, I believe that it is a direct to consumer brand. So like people create, you create a relationship with your customer, they order from you online, you can't find the product in stores. Is that, is that accurate? It's hundred percent accurate. You know, I call ourselves a modern D2C brand um, meeting like 90% of our business and you know, our connection to the consumer is digital based. But we do have some physical retail outlets, for example, um, Hype Beast, which is like a very influential um, media outlet in streetwear, is um, going pretty hard into golf and they're opening up a flagship store in Soho in Manhattan. And we're one of their featured brands. So we have like these um, one off uh, retail partnerships, but we're not at scale, nor will we ever be like in a Dick Sporting Goods or whatever else. Okay. okay. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like why? So... Uh, talk about the decision to go D to C. Yeah, D to C, like it's interesting. Um, first of all, D to C, like has been obviously very hot for the last few years. Um, the timing has been challenging. If you think about like five years ago, the mattress brand of the day with like just source of product in Asia and like spend money on Facebook, right? Like, and that playbook is kind of out the window. Facebook uh, ad costs have gone up by like 5x, you know, in that time period and the market has become more saturated. 
Um, however, it is the easiest way to bootstrap a business and be deeply connected to a consumer. Um, and for us, like Uncommon has been like one massive experiment and the digital format has just given us the ability to like really iterate and test and uh, refine our product and brand uh, kind of as we go. Okay. Fascinating. So, so why don't, can you talk a little bit about what makes the, the Uncommon golf balls special? Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, golf balls, when you think about it, like the ingredients to a golf ball in terms of like, you know, the urethane covers, um, the cores and the mantles, they're very similar compositions from brand to brand. Uh, one of the interesting things that a lot of golf ball companies do is they design their, their balls for tour players, right? They have massive, they hit the ball like a massive distance Their swing speeds are high. And like to us, that just didn't make sense. We're never going to have a tour player play our balls. It's just not, you know, kind of what we're interested in. Um, and we wanted to build a ball that was, um, I would say, like more built for the average golfer, right? Like the 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 ten handicap weekend player and and whatever else. So you know, our balls have like a little bit of a um, a softer compression compared to our tour ball. Um, they have like an amazing feel around the greens, and we basically just mm -hmm. kind of engineered them with all these different materials to be more forgiving and have more control for the average player. If that makes sense. It, it does, yeah. So and and you you know you're you're talking to somebody who's been around golf a lot, but is not a golfer. And so yeah. I don't, so, so I, I'm glad that you're kind of spelling that out a little bit for me. So would it be, and this is a dumb question probably, but is it, would they be allowed to be used at the professional level? Of course. Yeah. Like our balls are all, there's basically a governing body in golf, USGA, and you have to be conforming to them. So, okay. you know, uh, even the way like stuff is printed on the balls to the number of dimples, to the materials, to like, how solid the core is like this is a ball cut in half by the way um all these different elements need to conform to this the rules of golf and our balls do conform to that they could be played on tour i think it's just more of like a philosophical stance on like you should not be playing like will if you play golf five times you aren't making it up i don't know how much you play you should not be playing the ball at tiger woods place like it right. makes no sense however the whole golf industry was built on this marketing pyramid that like basically says if Tiger Wood plays the ball, Will's going to want to play the ball. Yeah. And I just don't think that makes sense anymore. Right. You know, yeah. Okay. So that, yeah, that totally makes sense to me. I, so I, I do, uh, you know, a little bit of, of weightlifting and, uh, and, and strength building and um, you know, everybody wants to jump right into doing what Arnold Schwarzenegger did. You know, he had a six day a week routine and you know, this crazy split and, uh, and then, and there are plenty of other people who people want to model themselves after. And it's like, you know what, look, you're, you know, you know, if you're a, a 12th grader who's, uh, you know, who's never lifted a weight in their life, you know, that's not how you start. You start out with a very easy, very boring, you know, setup that's going to get you great, great results. It's going to look nothing like Arnold Schwarzenegger in the beginning. Exactly right. It's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So that, that's an interesting, that, so, so is that a difficult, um, so in, in weightlifting, that's a very difficult thing to explain to people. You know, people want badly to do what their hero is doing. Yeah. Um, it, what, what's it like in golf? I think it's difficult to, you know, I mean, um, the, like I said, this whole industry has been built on this pyramid of influence. You see the top companies that are just like, it's like a dog fight to get the number of players, the maximum number of players on tour to play their equipment. Um, you know, what's really interesting in golf right now is there's this like greater market and, uh, you know, I would say like the greater, you know, the people who have been playing golf for 20 years, right? And then there's like this, um, this younger demographic who have like come into the sport of, uh, over, let's say, call it the last five years. And they do not want to play by the rules of the older generation, right? The older generation is, uh, 
I don't know, at least the way I felt going to country clubs as a kid was a little bit like out of place um, and at times stuffy and, and like all those traditions of golf are just like, it has such a rich, rich history and that's incredible. But there's this new generation that is just like kind of calling bullshit on the old generation. So I would say like amongst the older audience, like they're never going to be interested in uncommon. They're going to play the Tiger ball, right? But like amongst the enlightened generation, you know, I shouldn't say that, but like, you know, I think people are much more open and like, yeah, that makes no sense. Why would I do that? I want to play an uncommon ball. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. I could definitely see that. Um, so why don't we um, uh, turn a little bit to your role at yeah. uncommon. So you, so you founded the company. Yeah. Um, what's that been like? So I assume you're, so you've kind of had to spearhead what, well, what, what's your, what is your role day to day? Yeah. You know, I'm the founder and basically the CEO, you know, like we're, there's seven of us working at the company, um, you know, and to ask, to answer what it's like. So, you know, it's interesting, like there's these two paths and I've kind of been exposed to them both. Like if you want to run a business, one is like, you kind of climb the uh, corporate ladder, right? And that's one way to do it. Uh, the other way is that you just start a business, right? Um, and, you know, like kind of the learning curve and all that stuff is, there's some stuff that's really applicable on both ends and there's some stuff that's completely different. In this case, since we're starting from zero, like for, for, to answer your, your first question, which is how is it? It is a roller coaster. Like some days you're like, I'm a freaking genius. Like I am the man. And then like six minutes later, you're like, I am an idiot. Like, what was I thinking here? Like it's the dumbest thing ever. Why am I spending time on this? But you know, the cool thing about Uncommon is like, it's a really, it's really passion led, led project, right? Like I think we have a strong belief that golf can be better, like, like idealistically and it can be more inclusive and, um, you know, it could represent golf is like a magical sport walking a fairway with friends on a summer sunset. And, um, and most golfers, if you're on the outside of golf, you don't have the view to that, like all these kind of magical moments. Um, and like, you know, we are like on a mission to like kind of spread that and like the love of the game and all that. And it's really fun. The other hand, other side of that is like, it's a lot of work, right? Like, um, you know, my job is like keeping people all moving in the right direction and being focused on what we need to do as a brand. Like we are bootstrapped. Uh, we're deliberately bootstrapped. Like we've had opportunities to raise capital. We don't want to, we just want to play by our own rules. We want to grow the right way. We want to be really deliberate in our growth. Um, and you know, the hardest thing is like galvanizing, even if it's five people or seven people and pointing everyone in the right direction and saying, this is where we're going and this is how we're getting there. And this is how we're going to get there. And here's how we're benchmarking that and measuring everything and like you know and here's how it plays into the five-year vision so that's what i spend a lot of time doing okay yeah um and, and i talked to a number of of ceos who have successfully done bootstrapped companies and you know i think it's a wonderful model if i mean you you main as you said you maintain control you maintain your ability to to have a coherent vision and you know you don't have these quarterly meetings that are brutal about you know, with outsiders wanting to, to know where you are in terms of hitting your marks and how you're spending their money. Um, so, I mean, I, I t I'm, I'm on board. Yeah, I, it's great. Look, I think that uh, we're also like in, in simultaneously building like an advisory board. So we have the right people directing us and all that other stuff. And I think it's just a balance, right? Like we want to play by our own rules, but that doesn't mean we're not being aggressive and like we're ambitious and, you know, we want to shake some stuff up in this industry. So, wh so what kind of targets have you set for yourself? Um, in terms of like milestones yeah. throughout the business or yeah, in, in terms of, so, you know, a lot of times, you know, we get a lot of people who want to, to 
become CEOs, they want to manage their companies better. And so they think about, you know, different metrics that determine success. You know, what, yeah. what, do you, what are some good metrics that, you know, you want that you're keeping in mind for, well, you know, as you're, as you're building your company? You know, to really like speak to, I could talk about KPIs and metrics all day. Like the idea that we had with Uncommon, we spent two years um, building our community before we launched the brand. And the one metric that we looked at was like, we wanted the idea of what, with building Uncommon when we came to the market, which was only eight months ago, was that we wanted to build a thousand true brand fans, right? And um, I think companies make uh, a really fatal mistake when they launch or when they market, or even as they grow up and they market and they, they speak to a too, a too broad of an audience. They try to be all things to all people. And we kind of came to the table and said, look, we want this to be really polarizing. We want some people to hate us, but we want some people to fall in love with us. And the way we thought about our word, our idea, our brand spreading is by having these thousand true friends a thousand true fans who tell their friends and tell their friends and tell their friends. And that was going to be like our main kind of word of mouth marketing strategy. So basically like a tube of balls, you know, costs 30 or 35 bucks on our website. We have a bunch of apparel. Um, and the way we've defined our true fans is if you spend $250 a year with us. So we kind of looked at them on a lifetime value perspective. And the first and foremost goal, it wasn't to like, you know, spend a ton of money on Facebook or whatever else. It was to acquire these a thousand true fans and then have a relationship with them where like our gospel spread and spread and spread. So that, that's first and foremost. I love that. So a thousand true fans and they'd be spending, you know, 250 a year approximately. Exactly. exactly. That was like our benchmark. They'd order a handful of balls and some apparel and accessories and, and whatnot. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So um, if you don't mind me asking, so how did, um, so in terms of building your community, what, yeah. what did you rely on for that? You know, did, was it social media? Was it? Yeah. Honestly, it was like Instagram. And, and nice. I think you know, Instagram is very fertile from a golf perspective because, you know, Instagram, golf reminds me of, um, you know, like I said, I grew up in, in snowboarding and streetwear culture. And like, that was very big in the early 2000s when Sean White won his first Olympic gold medal. And, there was all these like cottage industries coming off that and a lot of really small brands that were like really making waves in the market. And golf reminded me of that um, in the last few years There's a lot of very cool small brands. And there's a very cool built in networking community of golfers on Instagram. Um, so that's where we chose to build. Nice. Nice. So, um, and, and so has that, has that kind of platform been working really well for you? I mean, you've been at it for about eight months now, I think, or no, you, you were building your community before the eight month launch, I think. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, I'd say like we've been working on it for two and a half years and it's been incredible, nice. right? Like, you know, if you looked at um, uh, the surface of our Instagram, like let's say we have 5,300 followers right now. It's not like the metrics aren't impressive. What's impressive is our engagement. Like, you know, as, as brands grow, they tend to have like a 1% engagement rate on, on, on a social media channel like Instagram. And like, we have like a several uh, percentage points worth of engagement on most of our posts and people are commenting and liking and sharing. And we know most of these people's on a, on people on a first name basis. Like we have built our, these a thousand true fans like through this and uh, and they share our content and we have like a great relationship with them so uh, it was always smaller quantity deeper relationships and and again i think that's like kind of the seed for things to grow and become bigger yeah yeah absolutely and what, one thing that i love about this is you know I, I a lot of times people will want to spread themselves out over instagram facebook linkedin twitter you know and they don't really do any of those platforms well I've yeah. seen, you know, just from my own anecdotal experience, you know, when you go all in on one, 
it's tremendous. You know, get that's exactly what we've results. done. Yeah, that's exactly what we've done. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so when it comes to being CEO, so you said you're you've got a team of about seven people. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, you know, how do you like uh, how how do you like being CEO? Is it do you feel like you've got? Does it play to your strengths? It's funny because like you know I grew up in um, I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs and I've cl- I've climbed the corporate side too. So we, we could talk about that if you want. Um, and like, I've always wanted to run businesses and I, like the CEO thing from the outside is like sexy. Right. Um, on the inside, it, it's thankless and it's a ton of work and um, you know uh, and there's like parts of the job that, you know, just quite frankly, like suck, like, you know, inevitably you disappoint people or people want more than what you could give them or, or whatever else. And it's like, it's hard managing that stuff. So I would say that like overall, um, I feel like I'm weird to say this out loud, but I feel like I'm meant to do the work. Like I, I really like working teams and inspiring people and growing people and um, and like seeing people blossom and thinking strategically about the business. And, and like, I like touching, I always feel like I was a pretty bad specialist in my career, but a great journalist. I was always interested. I, you know, my first job was in sales and I was always interested in the finance side of the business. And then, you know, I was in biz dev and I was interested in the marketing side of the business. And like, I've just always been curious about all this stuff. So, you know, the upside is that you get to touch it all and it's really, really interesting. Um, and the downside is that like, just it's, it's like endless, you know, like everyone wants more from you and like at night you go to sleep thinking about like, you know, for example, like there's a handful of, um, our team who have, um, contributed to the business on a cash perspective, right? Like Mm -hmm. they've invested. Right. And like, I'm basically the steward for their money and there's, there's some responsibility that comes along with that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, would you say that you, um, uh, well, how, how have you been, were you influenced by the family background? You said you've come from a family of entrepreneurs. Incredibly influenced. Um, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors um, and they moved to the U.S. Um, and like, you know, my grandfather like was working in the garment district of New York selling fabrics. Um, my dad was a um, land developer and entrepreneur. And, um, you know, from a young age, I think, you know, when I think about like, I have a kid on the way, so I'm really thinking about like, what does it mean to be a parent and what are you trying to unlock in your kid? And whether it be academics or sports or whatever the interest might be, I think like your job is to find that like interest, whatever they're inherently into or curious about and like nurture it. Mm-hmm. And for me, like at age 10 or whatever, like business was interesting to me. Like I was fascinated with my dad's story and his company and going to work there and like sweep houses when I was young and all of this stuff. And I was just really, really interested in it. So it's, it's like the single biggest impact I think on my life and my career. Wow. Well, wow. yeah, that, that's fascinating. Um, so, um, so you've talked about Instagram and how that's kind of the marketing platform that you have been, you've selected. What other yeah. kind of technologies are you using as you're, as you're managing your team or building the company, you know, there, anything in particular kind of stand out that you're really. Yeah. Kind of I mean, like, that's the thing, like in, in 2022, like we are literally the luckiest people ever to be alive right now and have access to the tools we do. Um, Shopify like absolute game changing platform, like websites that would cost $200,000 uh, five years ago, like now cost $2,000, right? Like, so um, so we're heavily reliant on Shopify, all the plugins and apps that go along with that from like review tools to analytics to like, you name that. Um, 
you know, I'd say like all the communication tools, like we live on um, Slack and Google Drive and all that other stuff. So nothing like we haven't developed anything specific to us, but like those tools, we wouldn't be able yeah. to do one common without all that stuff. Are you, is your team distributed or is it uh, yeah. all in yeah. one place? Yeah, distributed that, East Coast, uh, West Coast, um, and handful us in Utah. Yeah, that, that's great. Um, yeah, I've focused on building a distributed business as well. And it was before COVID that I made that decision. And, um, you know, and obviously after COVID, everybody went distributed. And, yeah. you, know, it, you know, so it wasn't a complete shock for us because I mean, we've always done that. And, you know, it, I just think it's, it's really, you know, it's the way that you can have the best talent, the best people, um, you know, involved as long as you've built a good company that they want to be involved with. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Could have been uh, so yeah, have there been any challenges with the, with the, the virtual nature of, of building the company or since you did it from the ground up, has it just yeah, been I mean, pretty like, smooth? Look, we've mostly done this in during COVID, right? Like, so I think yeah. the challenges that like, you know, we've gotten everyone together. Like it's been over two years, one time, you know, everyone together. And um, that's challenging, right? Like even from a cultural perspective and going out and having a coffee or like catching up, um, you know, 90% of our meetings are like, they are business meetings, right? Like we're looking at the metrics of the business. We're looking at strategy, we're looking at performance and, um, and it's not like spending time together and building teams. Yeah. So that, that's definitely a challenge, but I think COVID's going away now and that's going to be a lot easier going forward. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so let me ask you this. So you, you, you have not taken on any institutional money. You have gotten some investment. It sounds like from individuals, um, you know, um, you've got your thousand user, you know, kind of, you know, target, you know, and, um, in terms of, you know, so some, some, uh, brands like yours want to bootstrap to a certain level and then take on venture capital or who knows what kind of growth capital, um, and then others, you know, I was talking to the CEO of beard brand, not, not too long ago. And, you know, he's never going to do that. You know, he wants yeah. to grow and he's made a great company out of that, you know, that was bootstrapped essentially. And now it's a wonderful brand. There's a lot of loyalty to it. Um, which path do you think you'd want to go? Do you want to keep it independent like that? The kind of the way beard brand has so far, or, or do you feel like you would want to take on institutional money at a certain There's point? There's no question that it'll be independent, right? Like, you know, we're a consumer-based business. So obviously, like, as we grow, uh, you know, the great thing is it's really exciting to see growth. The downside is you have to finance it, right? Like, yeah. so, you know, I think for the first five or six years of the company's life, we're always going to have to be thinking creatively about how we finance inventory um, and our growth. Um, and, like, you know, the cool thing about today's world is, like, again, five years ago, it was, like, it was like, do you raise money or do you not? And now there's, like, a lot of gray areas. Like, there's a lot yeah. of these really cool platforms um, where you could like work on a debt basis and finance your inventory through um, for like a pretty compelling interest rate and stuff like that. So, you know, the, uh, Uncommon, while the project is ambitious, um, I've been in those situations where we raised a lot of money, not not for Uncommon, for, for other businesses. And um, it's a different level of pressure and obligations and expectations. And Uncommon is this like, in my mind, this might sound a little too out there and poetic, but like, it's like this beautiful thing that's like growing and like, we, I want to take risks with the business. I want to weaponize language. I want to take a very strong position in the market. I just want to be polarizing going forward. Um, and, uh, you know, like raising money really, really complicates that. So yeah. um, I would say a foreseeable future is, is bootstrapping and growing responsibly. Um, there's no, we don't need to grow right now, right? Like 
Um, it's obviously we're ambitious and we want this to be a business that matters from a financial perspective. I mean, you, it has to matter from a, a financial perspective to keep going on it, but outside our own expectations, there's nothing else we need to do here. And there's, there's magic in that right now. Yeah. Yeah. So in in the model is subscription. If I, if I'm not mistaken, is it, you know, is we it, have a, we have a subscription component, but obviously golf is seasonal. So that's really hard yeah. to maintain. So there's just an option on, on our website for subscription, mm -hmm. but it is still one-off purchases. So yeah, the model is 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 starting with a thousand fans and then going to two thousand and five thousand, and you know having this relationship with our customer that we nurture over time and yeah. you know build build in our base basically. And um and I think you know in terms of so I, again since I'm not a golfer um you know it, it's hard for me to to understand this but is how, how many golf balls do people need to buy in a year like if they're a reasonable if they're kind of a casual golfer or a, yeah. as you described it like a, a ten par what, what was it a yeah, a 10 handicap. You know, like a 10 handicap is actually a guerrilla golfer. So call it a 20 handicap. Like yeah. that person probably plays seven or eight rounds a year. They might lose six balls. So like call it call it like six dozen packs of balls, give or take. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, and you've, you've talked about the better experience that somebody has when they're using your yeah. golf balls. Um, is that is that kind of what you think is forming forms the bond and the makes somebody into like a raving fan? You know, yeah, that is like the experience everything. when they're using it. Yeah, like you know, if you think about like our our brand is built to be different, right? That's why we're called uncommon, right? So that we have like a thousand touch points, literally, like throughout the brand experience, where like each one adds up, and um, you know, it's designed to make our our customer think, huh, like this is different than everything else out there, and I think. Really, it's the cumulative effect of that. It's not one single touch point. I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll show you our packaging over here. Um, I should have been prepared for this and had it right here. But like, you know, our packaging comes in these like really cool. Um, I see that. What's up? These like these like really cool corrugate tubes, and inside the tube, um, our balls are in this basically like silk microfiber bag. So you take this this bag out and you could put it in your golf bag or you could put computer charges chargers in it in your backpack and you reuse it over nice. time. And you know, like this is a perfect example of thinking different where we were like, we looked at the at the at the golf market, the golf ball market, and we said, why do all balls come in a square box with more boxes inside them? Like, number one, it doesn't look cool. Number two, it's not environmentally friendly. And like number three, it was like limited design space to tell stories around and all that other stuff. And you know, like, so that's example of like, and for us, like, we're never going to be on the shelves of, of Dick's Sporting Goods, right? So we don't need to be in a box. That's the answer, right? All golf balls are in a box because they need to fit on a Dick's Sporting Goods shelf, right? So, so like, we just had more design liberty to do something different. So this is an example of like the one of a thousand, you know, touch points that like are built to inspire and engage our consumer. I see. That's, that's really cool. Can you hold that up one more time? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Funny. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So this does remind me of kind of the Apple experience, the, you know, you're, you know, you're going to get something. It's kind of, you know, you've never seen this kind of packaging before for that product and exactly you know, right. it kind of creates a better, a better feeling as you're, as you're opening it. Exactly. You know, I was, I don't know what the other thousand touch points are, but I just heard of another one from Apple, um, which I'd not heard of before, but they have made it. So there's a one-time smell that, is that you that you smell when you open an apple product which disappears it's not it doesn't your product doesn't have the smell on an ongoing basis but that's part of the unboxing experience is there's apparently just this this aroma that i didn't know that but like i think it makes complete sense it does yeah doesn't it yeah wow 
Yeah. So I know, I think though, I think every, so I, I like the idea of the a thousand touch points. And so when you say a thousand, do you, do you, do you literally mean it's a thousand or are you just saying there's a lot? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean like, you know, things to like, you know, our balls are designed differently than in anything else in the market. Um, if you look at um, our numbers, each oh, yeah. golf ball is numbered. Sorry, there's a little bit of reflection there, but like our numbers are basically like in a dice format, you know, because okay. like, you know, um, gambling is part of golf, right? Like you're gambling with friends. So like, you know, our numbers are dice formats, um, you know, so like e packaging to the way we tell our story, to the way we interact with our customers. Like we have a text message, um, an SMS platform, like on our website, like that's how we do all our customer service, all our interaction. Um, yeah, like th there's just literally a thousand, a thousand touch points. Wow. How hard was it to get approved by the USGA? It wasn't too hard. Um, it wasn't too hard. Uh, if you look at the USGA, like a conforming list, like every month there's like, actually, I don't know if it's every month or every quarter they do submissions, but like, there's literally like hundreds of products that, that get approved and their guidelines are very, very clear. So okay. the hardest thing was like just doing the work on all the guidelines and like reading it with a fine tooth comb and like making sure that every single box was checked. And once we were able to do that, it was really easy to get approved. Interesting. Interesting. So, um, so the one part that, that, um, that I'm, I'm curious about here is so pretty much every other brand, it sounds like wants a celebrity endorsement. They want, right. Like they want some, a golfer using it. You know, you, you're, you're going the opposite direction. It sounds like, um, you know, is that, what, what does that mean though? Exactly. Like, what is that like, like what is, so it, does it mean that you're going to be purely word of mouth based on existing users and you're going to count on, the existing users to have an amazing experience and so then that it'll snowball or is there any other is there is there something else to it yeah to, to be clear like we're going to have endorsements we're just not going to do them in the way that every other golf ball brand okay does it. we're not going to have pro tour players um playing our products right but we're going to have other people who are influential in golf or the community or whatever else that might be playing our balls and might be you know some kind of a um we might have some kind of relationship with them, whether like it's on a paid basis or whatever else. So I do believe in the endorsement model. I just don't believe in it the way like every other golf ball brand does it. Yeah. What about the education um, component where, you know, you've got people coming into golf all the time and, you know, they don't know how to golf. And it sounds like some of those folks are your audience. I mean, you want yeah. folks who are, I would assume who are, who are, you know, newer golfers sometimes. Um, you know, what, what, you know, do you, do you want, are you putting out any educational material, that sort of thing to help people with their swing, to help people kind of get, you know, an understanding of golf? Is, is that part of the strategy at all? Good question. It's not right now. Um, it's not right now because, um, you know, like the teaching pros, like a PJ teaching pro, they do incredible, yeah. incredible work. Um, especially even on all, all the social media platforms, like there's a lot of great content out, out there. One thing that we do spend a lot of time talking about is like, how do we educate people on playing the right golf ball or using the right equipment and stuff yeah. like that? So I think that's something you'll see more from us, but in terms of like the actual golf swing, uh, probably not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because you mentioned how five years ago, the advertising strategy would have been different. You know, I think it's true that the educational strategy would also have been different. You know, five years ago, you could start an educational channel on YouTube, for instance, and grow it more easily. I mean, I think you could do it today, but it is so crowded and so, so crowded. couldn't agree yeah. more. 
Yeah. So, no, I, I think, I, you know, it, it's interesting because, uh, you know, as you said, we're some of the luckiest people to be alive today. I mean, especially as business owners who, yeah. you know, there's so many ways to grow a business, but there's still challenges because there's so many, you know, I think there's a techniques, there are techniques that would work, you know, two years ago and two years later, those techniques are, you know, debatable. There's no, question. there's no question. It's amazing because we have like the technology and the resources yeah. and the access to people. But um, yeah, you still, there's the fundamental reason uh, that your product or brand exists, like still needs to be strong, right? Like, and the way you communicate with your, your community and um, you still have it to do a lot. And also like to your point, being native on certain channels, right? Like it's, it's, it's hard to stand out. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, we talked about metrics a little bit ago. Um, do you, do you, and you mentioned people getting tattoos of, uh, of brands. Like is, is that like a, a benchmark you're still waiting for? You want you to see your first customer with a tattoo on their, uh, on their arm? You know, I don't know about that. I think I feel <laughs> a little guilty, right? Because like, you know, um, it, I don't know. I don't know how I feel to be honest with you. So I would say that's not a metric, but I think little things like, yeah. you know, um, I was in like a, I was in Whole Foods like in uh, a few months ago, and like I was wearing an uncommon hat, and someone stopped me. I was like, oh, that's that new golf thing. Are you like, are you like, and it just asked me about it, not thinking that I was like involved or whatever, but was just like, you know, and I was like, those are like really proud moments, right? Because like, yeah. as, as an entrepreneur, you spend so much time building in a vacuum and like thinking about the stories you tell and how it's going to resonate with people. And every time that you see someone wearing um, a hat or playing a ball in the wild, there's a little bit of like a, like a good warm fuzzy feeling. You're like, okay, cool. You know? So I don't know. I don't know if we're at the tattoo phase yet, but like just seeing the product out there makes me happy. Yeah. I, I know what you mean. That it is. That's a wonderful feeling. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I always like to ask, has there been any moment in the past since you started the company, since you started Uncommon, has there been any moment where you wanted to quit, throw it in, the, you know, just throw in the towel, you know, e even for a short period of time? Um, it's a good question. I would say no. Um, the quick, the quick answer is no. That's great. Um, but there's moments when like, it's been like, like hit me over the head on how hard it is going to be like for example this year because like the global the state of the, like the global supply chain yeah. and logistics infrastructure like we had to place all our um inventory orders like in october and we still haven't gotten the product and we had to do it all up front like normally we have like 30-day production and 30-day shipping cycle so reasonably like we could place uh product orders for golf balls like every 90 days and just have a steady state of inventory flow this year we had to do it all up front so there's like a level of risk that just comes in especially as like we we launched the product in august last year so the tail end of the golf season yeah um and there's a level of like risk and unpredictability where like you know it, i like it definitely caused me to pause and go okay like does this still make sense to do yeah um and after like thinking about the answer was yes but like you know uh that one that one like that one definitely caused me to pause and think a little more. Yeah. Have you had any other supply chain issues? Um, knock on wood. I wouldn't say like we have had other supply chain issues. There's just been like a um, strong sense of urgency to get product in production and get it here for spring, which luckily we've achieved. 
Um, and there's like every other week there's like, so one of the main ingredients in, in our cores is called Serlin. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's like a, you know, certain type of rubber compound and, you know, like there's one week it's a, a Serlin shortage. The next week there's coronavirus in Hong Kong is shutting down and the next week it's some, so, yeah. you know, it's just, I think it's just like that, that's like how the world is right now. And yes. you just have to live in this world of uncertainty. And like my message to the, to the team is like, it's going to be hard. It's gonna be another hard year and like it's just gonna make us better and like when these things don't exist or exist at a smaller level um it's just gonna be that much easier to operate the business but like from a cost perspective like to ship a container of goods from china to the us right now uh two years ago was 1500 bucks now it's 15 grand wow like so there are like a, a lot of really challenging elements of the business to making anything overseas and, and selling it wow globally. yeah that's a huge uptick just shipping Wow. I see. I see. So that was, so obviously that's going to affect your costs and, and you know, everything. A hundred percent. Yeah. And then, you know, we had this question of like, do we pass the, the cost increase along to the consumer? Right. And, and we ultimately ended, landed at no, that like we would just eat the margin right now because like we want, we want to get our product out to people and we want to tell the brand story and get the brand message out there and like remove all obstacles to that. And like longer term, we're going to spend more time thinking about our margins and yeah, sure. um, how we get healthier there. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially with your strategy of, of having word of mouth and, and all of that. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, that, that hopefully will come back around and, and, uh, and help you guys out. What about shipping delays? Has that been a if, like getting your product to customers? Has that been easy or is that over the, you know, has that been a, an issue? Luckily, it hasn't been an issue. We have like a very good logistics partner. Um, that's based in Salt Lake. Uh, they're called Agile and they've just been like excellent on every level. Um, and yeah, like knock on wood, like really no delays to the consumer. The only challenge has been that like there's a few colors that we've been out of stock on and obviously we can't fulfill that. So, and is, is that a supply chain type issue? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're going to be back in stock in 10 days. Yeah. 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 It's interesting though. Cause you know, two years ago or three, well, three years ago, I guess at this point, people would never even consider that as an, you know, being an, an issue with, with uh, not having colors in stock and all that. But I, yeah. I mean, I, I mean now, now I think consum consumers are, you know, they're starting to understand what's happening. I agree. I agree. There's some awareness from the consumer side. Um, and there's a little bit of forgiveness, but people still want like, sure. you know, Amazon has basically like convinced everyone that they could have anything they want in like two hours. Right. right. So, um, you know, do you sell? Sorry, go on. Um, so anyway, so everyone wants everyone wants everything overnight. Yeah, yeah, and that reminds me. Do you sell through Amazon at all? We have. Um, we've dabbled, like just as yeah. like kind of an experiment. Um, TBD on whether we continue with that. Like you know, there was demand, and and yeah. we actually sold through the product we sent them. But uh, I think for right now, we might want to just control the whole experience and be one hundred percent off our website. So ju just for the folks listening, for their benefit, um, you know, when you sell through Amazon, you're giving them a cut, right? Of course, yeah. So what what kind of cut is that that we're that you're generally speaking giving up when you've got? Yeah, there's basically like two fees. There's um there's like a referral fee that like is to sell on their platform, and that's about fifteen percent of the retail price. Yeah. And then there's the fulfillment fee, um, and that could be like five to ten percent of the retail price. So you're talking about like twenty to twenty per twenty five percent. Yeah. Um, the problem is that like on our website, right? Like we have basically a feature where if you spend $60 or more, you get free shipping, yeah. but like a consumer can buy a single tube of balls from Amazon and they get free shipping. So 
um, we're not getting the higher AOVs. We're not getting the higher checkouts, but we're still paying for free shipping and that hurts a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think I, but I I will say that the, um, you know, going the, the route that you're going where you're creating brand loyalty, a deep connection to your consumers. I think that gives you the ability to bypass Amazon. Pretty much nobody who doesn't do that can bypass Amazon in my opinion. I agree. I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, cause it, cause otherwise, cause it, cause you just, there's the economy of scale over there. They, they're always going to win on, yeah. on price. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, so you've tested out Amazon, but for now you're gonna, you're gonna stick it. Yeah, we've tested it. Like originally, like we wanted to be a little bit heavier on Amazon. Um, I think again, it's a great way to reach people. Um, I think we will be on there. Uh, I don't know if it makes the most sense in the near term. Yeah. Um, so if you were going to give advice to somebody who's starting a, a business or who's going to take the helm of a company as CEO, you know, what, what's something you might, uh, what's some advice you might give them? Um, have great mentors, like ha- have people to talk to and have people, um, that you can bounce ideas off. Um, and that could point you in the right direction that have done it before. Um, stay long-term focused. I mean, like these, these are things you're going to hear everywhere, but like, stay long-term focused and, you know, kind of stay above the tactical level in the business and remind yourself why you're doing it. Um, I think like long-term, if you're in the right space and you have the right strategy and you have the right product and you have the right brand, like it's just a time equation. It's a time and effort. Um, I think one of the things that like I'm convinced more of now than ever is that um, starting and running businesses, I always thought was like an intellectual pursuit and like the smartest people won. I don't believe that anymore. I think it's like the people that are willing to run through the wall and get the bloodiest win. And like, I think there's a lot of people that are just succeeding through sheer grit and determination. And, um, and I think that's the X factor. So like, think about that on your journey, however you prepare yourself for that, or like look in the mirror and say, am I the guy to run through walls? Like, you know, over and over and over and over again, like be really, really real and ready for that. Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Road to CEO. It's been a great episode, and I'm looking forward to following uh, following your business as it grows. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. You could check us out on Instagram or our website, uncommon.golf. Let me know what you think of the balls, and thanks for listening. Yeah, we'll put up all the details on how you can buy balls, how you can get in touch you know, with the company. And, um, uh, and you know, I hope everybody goes out there and gets their golf balls from Uncommon. Thanks so much. That's awesome.